Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we continue our reflections into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We are in chapter 15. And what I want to do this evening, my friends, is just really jump right back into chapter 15, where we left off. Uh, There's a lot I want to talk about this evening. And again, we have what here, 27 to 28 minutes to work through our subject matter. So again, I do just want to Uh, jump in. As always, if you have any questions, comments, observations, please do not hesitate to email me at j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com, or you can always go to my website at joeholcraft.org. You can hit the contact link button and send your message on its way. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to pull out your Bibles, I will go ahead and read, well, like I said, pick up where we left off, which will have me reading verses 20 to 28. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection under him, It is plain that he is accepted who put all things under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things under him, that God may be everything to everyone. Mm. Amen. Okay, so these opening verses, my friends, are going to have us going back into the Old Testament for sure. We have to remember that Paul is steeped in the Old Testament. And for this reason, without an understanding of the Old Testament, our faith in God would be somewhat impoverished, right? (laughs) If Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament, and we did not know what the Old Testament is about, then could we fully understand all of that transcendent beauty to which Jesus came to fulfill? No. I mean, It is return of the king without fellowship of the ring. (laughs) It is C.S. Lewis's the last battle without the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. One cannot possibly understand in its totality one without the other. And so it is. As we go through verse by verse this epistle of Paul's, we have been made to go back into the Old Testament so that we might be all the more enriched in our understanding of what Paul is trying to say. And so for that reason, as we touch upon this verse, chapter 15, verse 20, we are made to go back where? 
but the book of Leviticus. If you want to maybe keep your thumb in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and turn to Leviticus, uh, let's see here, Leviticus chapter 23, and I'm going to go ahead and read verses 9 to 14, okay, verses 9 to 14, and maybe we should first say something about the book of Leviticus, because I, I can hear you right now <laughs> saying the book of Leviticus, oh, that's just a bunch of stuff we don't need to know anymore, right? I mean, this priestly code, this holiness code stuff. No, my friends, every single verse is invaluable to understanding the intelligible coordination of how God has worked in salvation history. Every verse. And let me say this, Leviticus chapter 23 is so important for us who are Christians and Catholics. Why? Because in Leviticus chapter 23, you have a whole chapter devoted to how and when the great ancient feast days are to be celebrated. And one of those great ancient feast days is the Feast of First Fruits. And so to better understand again what Paul is saying, let us read Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 to 14. 9 to 14. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, that you may find acceptance. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the cereal offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, to be offered by fire to the Lord, a pleasing odor. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of hin. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh until the same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations, and all your dwellings. Mm, mm, mm. Okay, <laughs> well, maybe some background to the background, all right? We need to understand that all the inherent truths of Judaism are contained within the celebration of their great feast days. As I've spoken to it before, what the Catechism is for Catholics, the ancient liturgy was for ancient Judaism. It was the great Rabbi Hirsch from the 1800s, who, when asked, why don't you have a catechism, said, our liturgy is our catechism. I love that. Our liturgy is our catechism. So you see, my friends, the catechism for the ancient Israelites was inscribed into creation itself. Did we not talk about this when we were reflecting into the Feast of Passover? Inscribed into creation itself where God inscribed timeless truths in the agricultural seasons, that as days, weeks, and months bring to life the seasonal harvest, those same agricultural seasons became, if you will, heralds of covenant truth, of belonging to God. Remember the word covenant coming from the Latin convenire, which best translates as a compact agreement, is elevated by God to more than just this is yours and this is mine, but I am yours and you are mine because in God, covenant was a family bond. And so it is right to say that agricultural seasons in of themselves became heralds of covenant truth. And could we not say uh, in a more similar way, our own 
Catholic liturgical calendar is a catechism, (laughs) not written on pages, but written in days, written in weeks, written in months, where timeless truths are carved into the time signature of the liturgical season. This, of course, is highlighted when in, in such seasons as Lent and Advent. And so, my dear friends, it should come to no surprise that when we turn our attention to the Feast of First Fruits, nature itself, in its agricultural seasons, reveals God's covenant plan and that all-important mystery of encounter, the encounter that actually takes place in the offering. Now, we ought to situate the Feast of First Fruits in the larger context of the seven ancient feast days. And the best way to do that is to really organize the ancient feast days as the Israelites lived them, right? If we're going to be attentive to the seasons, then we need to be attentive to how the the Israelites lived out these seasons according to their season. So you have the four spring feast days of Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost. And then, of course, the three fall feast days of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So the Feast of Fruits was what? A spring feast day. And the spring feast days were tied to the wheat harvest, the harvest of barley and grain, okay? Incidentally, I should say something here before I go any further. The Hebrew word for feast best translates as the appointed time. You see, these feast days were celebrated at their appointed time according to God's plan as revealed in the rhythm of seasons. We have here on Seeds of Truth spoken extensively to Kronos and Kairos. Huh? Kronos as man's time, that time we put into our iPhones or iPads or calendars, right? And then Kairos, God's time, grace time, purpose-driven time, the Hebrew word for day in the story of creation— Yom, best translates as just not a day in a chronological sense, quantified by clocks, no, but a day that is tied to purpose. Essentially, Yom could be defined as purpose-driven time. So for the faithful Jew, their whole life was ordered to worship as their chronos was ordered to kairos, how their days as they might be plotted into a calendar were defined by kairos, God's time, grace time. Their time here on earth was now purpose-driven, if you will. So their whole lives were imbued with God because they lived in Kairos, grace-filled time. Now we could break down the aforementioned passage from Leviticus uh, chapter 23, verses 9 to 14, in five key points. Uh, First, how the whole center of the feast— was based upon the first sheath of barley or grain that would be brought from the harvest to the priest. This really was the central sacrifice of this feast. Second, once the priest received this, he would do a wave offering. And really, this was more of an elevation. And so rightfully so, we can call it an elevation rite or a rite of elevation. What does that sound like? We'll get to that in a minute. Third, It was celebrated on the third day from Passover. Fourth, there was to be an offering of an unblemished lamb with a grain offering, flour mixed with oil, huh? Or this grain offering can also be made into cakes of unleavened bread. Always, always, my friends, 
offered with wine. Fifth, the first grain to be eaten was when but at first fruits. Nothing can be eaten from the harvest until that offering. This was essential. And lastly, while on one level it was a thanksgiving feast, it was also a pledge of a future harvest. And of course, what would this future harvest point to? But the Feast of Pentecost. And just not the Old Testament church, the kahal of the Old Testament, but also the New Testament church, the ecclesia. Huh? So what you have here in Leviticus chapter 23, 23 verses 9 to 14, are a series of points that we are now made to reflect with in the light of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So off the top, could we not say in the Feast of First Fruits, we have the prefigurement of the resurrection of Jesus. The ceremony took place when? But on the third day from the start of Passover. So if Christ fulfilled the Passover on Passover night, then Christ would fulfill the Feast of First Fruits on the day of first fruits, the day of resurrection. I mean, how rich is that? What did we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 23? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Christ is not only the first to be raised in glory, but his resurrected humanity is an offering that ultimately ensures an entire harvest of believers that he will raise up. A harvest of believers that he has empowered by the gift of the Holy Spirit. We are on the heels of the great solemnity of the ascension. Why did he ascend? What did Jesus himself say? I must ascend so I can give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. I must empower you that in and through the Holy Spirit, there might be a new harvest of believers, a harvest of believers until the end of time. Isn't our Lord so providential? that we get to reflect into these verses in between the great solemnities of the Ascension and Pentecost? I mean, isn't God's timing splendid? <laughs> I was just talking about Kronos and Kairos. Here we are in Kronos reflecting into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, doing our thing, and he showers us with his Kairos, his grace, that we might go deeper into the very seasons that we find ourselves in. Because again, carved into the time signature of how we live is how God pours out his love. This is why I have always contended that if we lived our Christian and Catholic life attentive to the rhythm of the liturgical season, being mindful of just not the great solemnities, but also the great saints that we celebrate, we would ourselves become a saint, would we not? Amen to that. All right, what else can we say to this great feast day? Well, let us remember that until the sheaf of the first fruits had been presented to the Lord, no one was permitted to eat the bread, parched corn, or the like. So until God reaped the first fruits from the tomb in the garden, there could be no gathering of the harvest. Why did God rise again on the third day? Among other reasons, in fulfillment of the, the feast of first fruits. 
So we are hammering this point home that we might come to appreciate the seamless unity of the old and the new. And again, reflect practically with that question, what does this mean in my life? Because it's more than just a game of connect the dots. But once you connect the dots, a picture begins to come into view. And we need to be attentive to that picture that is coming into view for us, that Jesus had a plan. And he calls us to share in that plan, that plan of salvation. Incidentally, as we are reflecting into the significance of the third day, what about Mary? Does not Mary finding Jesus in the temple on the third day anticipate finding the resurrected Christ in the temple, in the new feast of first fruits? Last week, we were talking about the many-layered meaning of Mary finding Jesus in the temple. Well, well, here you go, right? Another foreshadowing, if you will. So what else did we talk about there in those five key points, those five key elements to this feast? Well, that the whole center of this great feast was based upon the first sheath of barley or grain that would be brought from the harvest to the priest, and that this priest would elevate this grain on the day of the Sabbath. How about that? We know the priest in persona Christi, which again simply means in the person of Christ, does his own wave offering, elevated offering, as he offers up the unleavened bread that would become the flesh of the lamb, the lamb whose bones were not broken. Isn't that beautiful? What's more, this offering of thanksgiving was also about prosperity and abundance. Consider, my friends, the superabundance in the miracle of the loaves and fishes, another prefigurement or anticipation of the superabundance of the feast of the new first fruits. There's a reason why we read the miracle of the loaves and fishes in John chapter 6, right before, of course, his great bread of life discourse, when he says, unless you eat of me and drink of me, you have no life. You have no life. So we reflect and contemplate the significance of these verses against the backdrop of the miracle of loaves and fishes. The Feast of First Fruits was about the superabundance, my friends, the superabundance of God's goodness, of God's graciousness. Remember that the word Eucharist comes from the Greek Eucharistia or Eucharisteros. Now, we typically translate that as to give thanks or thank offering, which it is and which it means, yes. But what is the root word there? Charis, grace. Eucharistia or Eucharisteros also translates that which is full of grace, that which has been endowed with the plentitude of grace. Why? Because it is Christ himself who has come upon the altar as the first fruits of the Paschal mystery. Again, this is what we share in. And oh, by the way, my friends, if you ever get posed the question, why wine and not grape juice? Well, among other reasons, as the Feast of First Fruits is being fulfilled in Christ, it was a feast that was accompanied with unleavened bread. Yes, but also, what did we read? Wine. Wine, which was the blood of the grape. You squeeze the grape. You press the grape to get wine. Christ was squeezed, was pressed in the garden and in his passion. So we drink wine 
which of course is transformed into his blood in the Eucharistic feast. So the feast of first fruits has been fulfilled in Christ. And as it has been fulfilled in Christ, my friends, we should always be mindful of the significance of the Old Testament and how it might help us appreciate what it is that we are actually receiving and at the same time sharing in. All right, what else can we say here to verses 21 and 22? For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Hear these verses about Adam and Christ. Well, Paul compares and contrasts Adam and Christ as what? But the two individuals whose lives have had the greatest impact on the entire human race. We see this in Romans chapter 5, verses 14 to 20, in one of those great Christological hymns where we are made to reflect into how in and through Christ we are saved from the sin of Adam. So just as sin had its beginning with Adam, and because of him the human family enters the world estranged from God and destined to die, so salvation comes to us through Christ, whose triumph over sin reverses the damage done by Adam and gives us a new hope, the hope that even our mortal bodies will be resurrected to new life. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. What does he intend to mean there? What is Paul talking about? Rule, authority, power. Well, there he's speaking to the demonic spirits who are hostile to God and the advancement of his kingdom. I have one of the episodes of Life is Worth Living ringing in my ears right now. Archbishop Fulton Sheen talking about how, how Satan uses all things at his disposal to cause disorder, dysfunction, chaos, to take our eyes off of Christ. This is why we need to pull back and ask the question, does our life belong to God? Are we moving towards God or does it belong to the adversary? Or is our life moving towards Satan? It's always one or the other, right? Certainly this is a great Ignatian principle. So, rule, authority, power. There Paul is talking about the demonic spirits who are hostile to God and the advancement of his kingdom. We have to remember that when you start talking about Satan, there's no ceiling, there's no limit to what he'll stop at, right? Just look around you. Look at the whore around you. It has its origin in Satan. It has its origin in that fallen angel, who wishes to confuse and deceive us. <clears throat> but if we are rooted in God and discern well, we see otherwise. Now in verses 25 to 27, these are the drama of the last days. Are they not? When, when Christ will triumph over his enemies and transfer his kingdom over to God the Father. Here it's interesting. Paul is making use of Psalm 110 and Psalm 8. Psalm 110 is one of those great psalms that portrays the Messiah enthroned at Yahweh's right hand, awaiting the subjection of his enemies. It's a beautiful psalm. We won't go there now necessarily, but when you have time, read it. As Psalm 8, Psalm 8 reflects on the original vocation of man to stand above all of creation as its ruler and steward. 
So Christ assumes both of these roles at his ascension. So how timely is it again that we get to reflect into this, in this season, if you will, of his ascension, from which time, of course, his reign continues until all creation bows in homage and his final adversary, death, falls in defeat. You know, this expression found in verse 25, until it fixes a limit, does it not, to the conflict between Christ and his enemies. Until. Okay, so we know who wins. So it's just a matter of whose side are we going to get on? Is it any more than that? We know who wins. Everyone wants to share in victory. You know, I have been coaching my children in baseball. And I have been acutely aware of man's desire to share in victory as I see these young kids celebrate when they win. Parents celebrate when their children win. Coaches celebrate. Why do we celebrate? Because there's something that is innate inside of us that desires to celebrate victory. How can we not think of those last few verses? in the epistle to the Hebrews, where the saints are cheering us on to run the race, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, to cross that tape, celebrating victory. Brothers and sisters, embrace the gift of sonship that we have been entrusted with in the Spirit, and we will share in that victory. And how do we do that? Well, (laughs) live out that vocation of in God for other. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love neighbor as yourself, and you are sharing in that victory. And you will hear those words, son, enter the kingdom that has been prepared for you because you have fought the good fight. Are not those words we all want to hear? Because do we not all want to share in victory? But a victory like no other, because it is a victory that is the victory, the victory in Christ. And it won't be a trophy that we receive, but the opportunity to worship him around the clock and to share in his eternal bliss. Amen. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.